Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 63. Today's interview is a super chill hang. I really enjoyed it. I think you will as well. We chat about how to bring a cohesive sound to an orchestra of individually recorded instruments. We also talk score versus album projects and why price doesn't always represent value. Before we roll into all that, I wanted to talk about why it's important to go with the flow, as they say. You can't control life. You can steer the ship and you can navigate it the best way possible, but you'll never know what will happen 100% of the time. Personally, I think going with the flow is probably one of my biggest strengths in the recording studio. My focus as an engineer is to let creativity flow uninhibited. And a lot of times that means embracing the chaos and just going where the session goes. See, when you're in the studio, there's no set in stone day or schedule. Sure, you might work on a project for a month and feel like there's a routine or a flow, And then just when you do, somebody will be in the studio across the hall, they'll come in and say hi, next thing you know, there's two bands jamming in the room and you're adding mics and inputs trying to capture whatever you can. You've got to be ready to just go with the vibe. You can't walk into a live room and say, excuse me, Mr. Huge Artist, I know you really wanted to jam with Miss Big Star right now, but generally, I really like to eat lunch around 12.30 and also optimally, we would set up a few more microphones first. No, you, you can't do that. That is not what keeps you working in this business. Real-world example. A few years ago, I did a session with a huge band and a massive producer. We were at one of the best studios in Los Angeles. Everything was set up. The assistant and I scratched every mic. We knew it all worked. So the band was filtering in. They were chatting in the live room. I think they'd actually just flown in. And the producer walks into the control room first. He asked me if everything was ready. I said, yes, of course. Then he walks into the live room, starts banging on some percussion, and yelling to the band to start jamming. Absolute chaos. Everybody started grabbing instruments. I quickly dropped Pro Tools into record and started adjusting the levels. Remember, we hadn't got any sounds. We'd only done a line check on everything. Then the guitarist pulled out a Kemper amp simulator, looked at us in the booth, and pointed to it, which is the Universal Studio sign for Make This Work Now. But Pro Tools was already running, so we couldn't make any new tracks without stopping, but we did have control room vocal and DI tracks, which were already in record, but obviously not being used. So I told the assistant, drop his camper into a couple mic lines, patch those into these Pro Tools inputs, which were already recording. He quickly ran into the live room, he did it, knocked it out, made the patches, done. No stopping the band, no killing the vibe. We rolled like that for about 30 minutes. Everybody had a great time. Did we use a single thing from it? No, of course not. But that wasn't the point. The point was to start off by having some fun. And the next 10 days of the session were all defined by that opening 30 minutes. Now, Would I have opted to start a session that way? Hell no, it was crazy. But that's where life took us. We were prepared, and because of that, we could just go with the flow. 
So a lot of you are probably thinking right now, well, yeah, duh, I'm a creative. I embrace the chaos. I'm always following the vibe. And yes, you are. Most everybody in music does. Producers are working with different artists every day, learning how to click with each of them differently. Bands are jamming and writing, maybe getting lost down a loop or inspired by a guitar pedal feeding back just right. Guest performers might jump up on stage during your jazz night. Insert 32-bar impromptu sax solo, right? So we all go with the flow. It's in our nature as creatives to seek out the chaos and get inspired by it. So if we all do this, why am I wasting the breath on this intro? Well... We all know that a lot of times, these intros are for me just as much as they are for you. This one is for me for sure. I need to be reminded that I built a good portion of my career on embracing the chaos and just going with the flow. It's the way I live my life for more than a decade. But since 2020, when I started spending most of my time mixing and also working exclusively in my own studio and by myself, I've become very fond of schedules and systems. I've talked about it a lot on this show. I love working for myself. I've come to love the control and the regularity of my workday and my life. And I've forgotten a bit about that chaos. Well, now I've got a new beautiful chaos in my life. This is the first intro I've written since the arrival of my daughter. It's been an amazing time. It's also been a bit of an unpredictable time. I've definitely had moments where I've spun out. I've missed my system and that control of working for myself. Well, I don't work for myself anymore. I definitely work for her now. So that's just how that goes. But anyway, this is all just a reminder to me and hopefully to you that every time you've embraced the chaos, you've gone into new territory. And every time you've gone into new territory, you've improved and you've grown. You come out better. So I encourage you to not let your go with the flow attitude get left at the door when you leave the studio or you walk off the stage. Remember, your whole life is the ride, not just your music. So embrace it. Today's guest is producer, engineer, and mixer Steve Kay. Based out of Sun King Studios in Los Angeles, Steve splits his time between the film and TV world and the record world. His credits include Fitz and the Tantrums, Lucius, Salem Elise, Inara George, Hepcat, and Ziggy Marley. He's also worked on movies and shows such as Bridesmaids, Green Book, Bridgerton, Dear White People, and most recently, King Richard. He's a great hang, killer engineer, so welcome to the show, Steve Kay. What's up, Steve? How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. Dude, we get you're uh you're like stealing my assistant. We gotta talk about this before we before oh, we get into yes. this. He's like I, he's I, always I, at I your apologize. studio now. <laughs> this is true. Thank you very much for the <laughs> great recommendation of the very talented Yannick. Yes, he's been a pleasure and so helpful. My gosh, thank you for the recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> No problem. I mean, I'm glad he's meeting a bunch of people in town, so that's cool. Yeah, totally. Do you do a lot of, like, assistant and, like, interns and, like, delegating, or is this, like, a new thing for you? Well, you know, I've done a little bit of it over the years, and I don't know if it's because <laughs> I'm an only child or what, but I've always <laughs> kind of been on the, like, tip of, like, oh, I'll just do it myself so I know it gets done right kind of vibe. But um, over the years... I've had some interns. I've had some foreign interns. I've had people straight from school also in America. But Yannick is probably the person I've like actually hired pretty consistently for the first time. And it's been such a pleasure and also so productive and eye-opening for me because, you know, towards the beginning of when, um, you know, he was working here a few months ago or whatever it's been, I just like stepped back and realized, oh, Yannick's been here working in the room over there like 40 hours this week. And I was doing all that 
on top of what I was regularly doing. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's so much more productive to delegate work and more pleasurable. Yeah. Right. Teamwork is great. It's good. I love it. (laughs) No, it's good. I was just talking about this with somebody. I don't know if it was, it's an episode that's out or if it's not. I've recorded so many, like, I don't even know what's happening anymore, but um, (laughs) it's great. Like, I remember the first time I had an intern that, like, got everything all prepped for me. I went from doing, like, like a mix a day or a mix and a half a day to, like, two and a half, almost three if I stayed late because all you had to do was, like, get in the zone. I like to go back and, like, you know, they're not, like, two-hour mixes. I go back the next day, but Mm -hmm. to get, like, the first you know, the thought out so fast without having to do all that other stuff is just amazing. So yeah, 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 it's great. It's such a luxury. Yeah. Wow. Is he there? Is he hiding in the corner now? You pointed in the corner. Is he, is he there? I don't think so. No, (laughs) no, no, he's not here today. (laughs) So there's a bunch of things I want to talk about because I feel like you have this kind of cool balance in your career where you're doing record stuff, you're doing film stuff. And I think there's a lot that like up and coming engineers can learn Cause you're always busy. You're always doing stuff. So, but before we do that, we got to talk about like the beginning, like we always do. What was your gateway drug to recording or, or the beginning of your music career? Yeah. I mean, ever since I was like a baby, both my grandpas were musicians, not professional, but between both of them, they definitely early on introduced me to their instruments and kinds of music that I wasn't into. And I got into pop music young as a kid and then rock and then started taking Basically, when I went into junior high, I started a violin and guitar in sixth grade and kept playing both all the way. In high school, I switched over to cello because there was too many violin players. And then for some reason, a certain college thought I should get in being a cello major, and that was a real bad idea. Well, I guess I skipped over the recording part. In high school, I, with some of my best like musician friends, we do like for fun, we do sound alikes, um, like try to just nail like Beatles tunes and Doors and Pink Floyd and like on four track and really like OCD out about that. That's awesome. <laughs> it was so fun back then. I mean, thinking about it now, it's still, I remember how fun it was. Wait, can I, can I jump in there? Yeah. The, I feel like that is like a genius way to learn. Like I know I've heard of guys like, you know, recreating pop tracks or beats or whatever, were you researching how they were recorded? Like, it seems like a great move. Yeah, I mean, with, you know, like the the now out-of-date books about the Beatles um, that we had then, and it's pre-internet, and um, yeah, we would just, anything we could find in like a book or a magazine that we had to clue us in on what they were doing or what gear they were using. Granted, we didn't have any of that gear. We had, you know, really cheap <laughs> quadroverbs and stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, like, I mean, really, we just like using our ears and trying with what we had to get it as close as possible. Like, you know, trying to like program our really poor sounding digital processors <laughs> like the quadroverb or other ones, Yamaha, to sound like some amazing phaser that, Pink Floyd used, and it was actually probably two tape machines. So we just nerded out as much as we could, and it was so fun. Yeah, and then after that, went to college, and uh, being a cello major was not... I had never taken any lessons, so like my lessons started in college, and I was just so far behind. It's like, how can I do a jury when I'm so untrained? Anyways, from there, I spent two years at Cal State Northridge, and it was great. The sort of musicianship and ear training and harmony and stuff... That was valuable. And actually some of the speeches that we got from the president of the music department still apply now to me. That's great. 
and um, performances that I would like skip class to go see, like Andy uh, from the police and classical Indian raga groups. And it was all like really mind opening. It was great. It was was a good time, but I quit college and I, and I went to uh, just continue trying to be, you know, a rock star or something. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I was in bands and, you know, playing guitar mainly and songwriting and I went to London for a month with somebody I was working with in LA who had like sort of pop work out there. And in between their pop work, we would write and um, work with some producers we were finding out there. And um, yeah, it was all like lots of new fun stuff, all based around music, getting me to travel and learn and have all these new experiences. It was great. And then, um, yeah, so I guess that's, that chapter. I don't know if I should go <laughs> further or if I'm just blabbing. <laughs> no, you're, you're good. So I made an assumption, maybe this is true, maybe not, because you said that your first lesson was when you were in college, but you were playing violin and cello. Did you, you must have read music though, right? So I took guitar lessons and then, yes, I learned to read music between guitar lessons and in high school, junior high and high school, like on violin. Okay. Yeah, so I still read, and that definitely helps with the whole like score mixing world, like reading all the time, like making sure parts that are supposed to be there aren't forgotten in my stems that I'm trying to mix or whatnot. And um, definitely reading is a thing for me, and it always was. Even on the guitar side, like on a tab side, tablature was a big thing. And, you know, in my 20s, I taught guitar and bass before I was like fully engineering all the time. I was a guitar teacher and it was just, you know, it was reading all the time. So yeah, there's a lot of reading. I'm not like some like amazing reader, but like (laughs) it's been a constant, you know, all the way through to some degree. That's cool. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions was, does your music reading come into play with like all your score work? But the fact that you were learning to read music while playing guitar is a rarity because I mean, we all know guitar players, like what's the joke? how do you make a guitar player stop playing? You put music in front of them. It's like, <laughs> when I was in music school, I remember they just put like music in front of me and it was just like, blank, blank, blank. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like immediately like all music stopped. But uh, it's kind of this weird, my experience in music school was that the people that were crazy sight readers that were like perfect and it was like mind blowing, yep. they, they couldn't take a jazz solo. Like it was, they were like incapable of it. And then the people that were like crazy intuitive, very improvisational you put music in front of them and they just like get up and leave (laughs) i feel the same way like i started like really experiencing that kind of stuff a lot when i used to teach in my 20s because i could see it with kids too like if there is a book in front of them some personality types or i i used to put it in two categories of like either you're a reader or a writer and Mm -hmm. like the readers are like cool i want to like absorb this material and learn it through what's on the paper. And other people were just like, so often they were like the future songwriters of the world because they're like, I don't need something in front of me. I have everything inside of me. It has to come out. And if you put something in front of me to read, it's going to slow that process down. And they're just like, especially as kids, they're just like raring to go. Like, tell me a cool trick so I can like play even more rather than read. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the film world, though, I'm sure those players, they can read and like really get the composer's articulations and everything out like really amazingly. But then at the same time, especially a lot of the uh, like the guitar players and stuff like that, they're also, you know, I guess because they're guitar players. I also like (laughs) 
to negate everything I just said, I feel like there's a place in life, and it probably has to do with 10,000, 20,000 hours, something 100,000 hours, where it all comes together. And I feel like with a certain amount of experience, you can stop thinking about reading and you can stop thinking about improving or writing and you vacillate between the two without thinking. It just happens. And, you know, the composers I work for are really good examples of that, especially, you know, Chris Bowers, who I work for primarily on the score tip. You know, he's just like an insane player, improviser, and composer. You know, like, I think it all comes together. The paths cross, like, down the road, you know. I think if you put music in front of me, well, I don't think. I know if you put music in front of me, I could tell you what it says. <laughs> I can't play it on guitar anymore. But it is like doing sessions at Capitol where you're like reading big band charts. I mean, even if you can like follow it enough where you're like, okay, I'm going to follow the the melody here because I know that these are all like eighth notes and then here's that 16th note run. Like I don't have to read the notes, but I can visually see like where we are in the piece of music. And have you done a lot of Pro Tools for like film and, and TV stuff? Because it's a whole different game, like engineering and running Pro Tools in those sessions. I have done some, usually for like score tracking sessions though. I'm usually just mixing for the room and there's the Pro Tools operator doing the playlisting and the actual, you know, recording. But I will say years ago when I started doing score sessions, I was like, ooh, look at all those like organizational techniques you got going over there and you're so quick and fast. And I, I was like, I'm using those everywhere. Every, like I'm going to bring those to album world, you know, it just increases the speed and the recording process just becomes that much more invisible to the artist. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, we're just here talking in the room. Oh yeah. There's a Pro Tools rig recording right now. Whatever. I'm keeping track of every take, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah I've, I've seen guys with like Excel sheets, like, you know, they're typing what's going on on like their laptop while they're running Pro Tools. And yeah, so for anybody that wants one quick tip on running Pro Tools for like a film or TV score session, if you don't make your bar counter match the conductor sheet, you're getting fired in like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what we were talking about. <laughs> but uh, you grew up in Los Angeles, right? Yep. I grew up in the Valley and took lessons out in the Valley, played shows in the Valley, played shows in Hollywood and everywhere else too. But uh, yeah, definitely a Valley boy. <laughs> <laughs> so you were doing these, these sound alikes when you were a kid and then you went through music school and you said you were teaching. Did you ever work in a studio? I mean, you're running your own studio. You're recording and engineering all the time. Did you ever work in one? Yeah, I skipped that part. Um, yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> when I was 16 and 17, my dad was a physical therapist and... Um, a few of his patients, you know, he would brag about his son, you know, playing guitar or whatever. And a, a few of them were like really integral <laughs> to my future, kind of. Um, I guess the main one being um, one of his patients was an engineer. I haven't been in touch with him pretty much since I was 18 or something, but his name was Mark or is Mark Curry. And um, the last two summers of high school, I interned at a studio that was right across the street from Hollywood High. And they mainly did jingles and movies, but they did some, you know, album music too. But yeah, and it was owned by this great piano player. And um, yeah, so I interned there and um, they didn't have Pro Tools there, but they had a digital console, a Euphonics. And yeah, they had me like sequencing their like CDs they would put out for their jingle business card, basically. 
So I did some like digital editing and just a lot of learning and meeting all the like session guys of the time, like Greg Bissonette and Tim Pierce and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it was really an insane learning experience. And then also when I was 16, I got a job out of the paper being a music production assistant. And that guy was an early Pro Tools guy. He actually worked for Digital Design and then moved to LA. And um, yeah, that blew my mind open with like nonlinear editing when I was 16. I was like, whoa, there's more audio past what I can see on the screen. That's amazing. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I did that stuff. Um, and then, yeah, when I came back from England, I took some um, UCLA extension courses for engineering and production and songwriting. And one of my favorites, you know, someone I still think about as being a real great influence was Matt Wallace, who is engineer producer, most famous for like, actually when I was taking a course from him, he was producing the first Maroon 5 record. And so like, you know, he was like, here's our setups, you know, for the band. And, you know, he, we were in the studio when they weren't there, basically. And um, yeah, he was such a kind, sweet, creative guy. And I, I was actually telling someone the other day about this, that I remember him telling us that he had in his contract that he had to be home for dinner every night and to put his daughter to sleep. And so they worked at Can-Am, which is now mixed by Ali's studio, I think, um, in Tarzana, where he lived. And, um, okay. and so it was really close by, so he could make it home for dinner. And I was like, whoa, you could do that? You can be like a rock and roll producer and like be a family man as well? So I don't know, maybe that's a future goal of mine. I'm not sure yet, but, but I, I always really respected him in so many ways, and that was one. And um, yeah, just, I don't know, when I was 20, I was like, whoa, that's so not rock and roll, but yet it's so punk rock. Like, yeah, it's so awesome. It's going against the grain. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Against the grain. Yeah. So really cool. So I took classes there and then I had a point in my career, you know, I'd been mixing records, recording records for, you know, probably over 10 some years at that point. And I was like, do I try to get a gig at cello you know which is now east west studios or, or like one of the bigger studios in town because i really want that experience i want i want to be a part of like really great records you know and see how they are made and learn as much as i can and um i was just like i can't afford to though i have rent and i can't afford to not like to be a runner to start at the bottom and so i was really thinking about it hard and then i just happened to get a call and i got like a full-time gig um working for composer and producer artist, um, Mike Andrews. And then for the next five years or so, I was like recording and mixing every day for mainly for films, but for records too. And, and it was just like, uh, that was kind of my in-house studio job gig cool. rather than at a big studio. It, it was at his amazing studio, yeah. which is like a museum of cool gear. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. 
Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Let me ask you a question about when you were considering going back to, like, get a job at, like, cello or something. Mm -hmm. If financially going back and being a runner and, like, basically getting paid minimum wage wasn't a concern, like, were you ready... Were you willing mentally to like go and start at the bottom? Like you wanted to learn that bad? Yeah, I totally was. I was like, I don't know what I'm missing out on. I want to like learn as much as I can and, you know, learn from people I I listen to their records, you know, like engineers and producers that, you know, I really respect. And um, if I was just independently wealthy or something, I probably would have been a runner at that point. Definitely. <laughs> that's That's impressive. So many people like... I've had one or two other people on this show that have like, you know, kind of been willing or did kind of restart, but just so many people like won't do that. And when it comes to like a learning opportunity like that, I mean, it's, you know, it's indispensable, but it's an interesting mental state. It's not a tough mental state, but most people don't want to go there. They're like, I'm not going backwards. Screw this. Well, I don't know. It's on the fence. Is like, is it backwards or am I, am I way beyond that? Or am I just like barely beyond? I don't know. Like That's I'll true. find out. Yeah. But I never, I guess I never exactly found out because I never did. <laughs> yeah, but you're fine. <laughs> I, I'm, I guess I'm doing all right. But yeah. Since you grew up in Los Angeles and it sounds like most of your college stuff was Los Angeles in surrounding area. Mm -hmm. Was the LA music scene kind of key to you? like coming up in your career? Were you like out playing in bands and like going to see bands and sure was, you know, recording stuff all the time? Yeah, I was in bands playing gigs all the time. I thought I was real hot stuff because I had like a, a weekly gig on the uh, Santa Monica promenade at a restaurant there, like in high school. And I'd get home at like 3 a.m. and I'd go to high school the next day. I'm like, yeah, I had a gig <laughs> last night. It's cool. No big deal. I'm just playing guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I wasn't like some shredder or anything, but I definitely was uh, playing guitar and some cello gigs um, live for years in different bands. Yeah, it was definitely, I guess it was my first focus as being a player, but it, you know, pretty quickly shifted in my early 20s to engineering. I, I really caught that bug, yeah. That's cool. One more question before we go kind of like down the film TV world. Mm -hmm. I think I saw when I was like reading around and clicking through the internet that you were also doing some like string arrangement and stuff as well, like early on. It yeah, that was for years. That was my main gig at the time that I was considering trying to go be a runner. Ah, I was doing like one man string things for like a, a lot of like what ended up being big records like Alicia Keys and CeeLo and Jennifer Hudson, a lot of like pop and R&B of the 2000, late 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah, I was mainly working for this one producer and um, it was just like kind of, he just had a bunch of work and it was great. It was really fun. There were some issues um, <laughs> that I guess uh, down the line was like, all right, okay, I've had my time with this. Basically, we weren't getting credited. Uh, my, my friends were sort of the rhythm section for almost all the songs I would play on the band Orgone, which is my oldest buddies. They're actually the first full-length record that I ever recorded when I was doing those UCLA classes. They were like the rhythm section, and I was the string section. And... We did a bunch of records, but we wouldn't really get credited. I remember we oh. made a stink of it. And then 
on one record, I think it was an Estelle record or something, we got credited, but we got first name and last initial, which worked out for me because my last name's K. So Steve <laughs> K worked out. But, Perfect. <laughs> but everybody else is like Joe S or, you know, like whatever. Why? This, this, this doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, I think I have an idea why. I think it okay. had to do with major labels and union stuff and residuals. But it's one thing to like not get credited. And then it's another thing to like have someone else take your credit, like all music and instruments by such and such. So yeah, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but uh, yeah. Especially when you're doing the arrangement as well. It's not, you're not like playing a chart. You're doing, no, no, yeah. you're, you're writing it basically. It's good money though. So it's just kind of like a work for hire. And I don't know if I should be talking about all this, but I guess I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, there were no names named. Yeah, But uh, normally towards the end of the show, I don't know if you've been listening to the second season of the show or if you've heard, uh, I know you've heard the show. I've been bringing up credits. So like, this is kind of an interesting point. Like now that you've had that experience, A, do you feel like that was a big setback or was it just frustrating? And B, are you just like really adamant about crediting everybody that works on your team now? I get like paranoid about forgetting people. Yes, I, <laughs> I, and... <laughs> Inevitably, I, I'll forget someone and I have to like edit my post if, I, if I'm posting something on Instagram or something cause, and, I, and I freak out. Yeah, definitely get some anxiety about crediting people because I feel like, yeah, it's so important. I mean, for me, like being a one-man string person, again, no shredder here. So it was like fun and creative, but there's people that I would, you know, I do like maybe one of those a year these days. It, you know, I'm just mainly mixing these days. So I'm not trying to get those kind of gigs. But if I was trying to make that my main thing, oh, it sucks so bad. Because, you know, you just got to, I guess, go to my website and trust me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> That's like the thing now, though. It's become that like, is... go to my website and trust me. Or go to my Instagram and like, believe it. I did this, I swear. Yeah, yeah, totally. And for years, my website was not only a place for me to not forget what I've done, but literally just to like mark down for the internet, like, hey, if anybody happens to be searching for who played on that thing, maybe they'll find it on my website or whatever. Yeah, so anyways, credit's very important. I also just like always enjoy, you know, ever since I was a kid, you know, listening to records while looking at the credits. Yeah. And now that is like me looking at Discogs and Tidal, which is pretty good but you know it can always be better and yeah especially when you know i mean especially when you're coming up from the beginning like every credit is so valuable oh, yeah it's funny though you know at the end of the day like you get a gig because like somebody heard you worked on this album they like but then what you do with that person is hopefully nothing like what you did on the other record because you're trying to make something new and creative but nevertheless that credit got you a gig, you know? So they are valuable at the end of the day, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for discovery, really, you know? it's For discovery. Like you said, meeting people and, and getting in touch, like, you know, finding players or, or whatever. Yes. Yeah, that, that's cool. Can I ask you one more one-man string section question? Oh, yeah. Since you were doing a lot of it, did you find, like, a interesting way to, like, layer and stack things up? I know I've heard of, like, people moving around the room and, like, I record first violins over here and I send you stereo mics. Were you doing any of that kind of stuff when you did it? In the beginning, I at my studio 17 years ago, I had the worst situation for that. It, so it was just like close miking and trying my best to like make it sound decent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of that early stuff I did 
has a sound, I guess you could say. I don't know if that's a good sound, but it had a thing because I was in a small room and I didn't have any distance. But as I then moved and moved to a new studio and and here, which my current studio is a similar size to my last studio where I was doing, my last studio is where I did a lot of that stuff. And it had higher, you know, it had 15 foot ceilings or whatever. I'd often, you know, do one close and one far mic. And I wasn't really too into the the moving on the mics thing. I would do that sometimes, but I'd put up a close and a far, like depending on what it was. Like, you know, these days it's usually like either a 47 close and a Coles far, or depending on the part, I'll reverse those and I'll put the Coles close and the 47 far. And um, yeah, you know, depending on what you're going for, what the song is, how dense the parts can be in the mix and all that. Yeah. So um, yeah, kind of a two mic vibe. Yeah. I mean, if I had a, a real nice space and I could set up stereo sheps and walk around them or something, great. That would be cool. But my space has always been mixing focused. And and so, yeah, I don't have some giant, like, dedicated string room. Right, right. <laughs> to move around. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, this is a total tangent. Like, if you if you don't want to nerd out, then, um, it, then skip forward. I love nerding out. Steve and I are going to nerd out for like three minutes. <laughs> this Vienna Ensemble Reverb, the mirror. Yeah, that's the key to my life in the last two years. Oh, you use that? Okay. So that's the sound of Bridgerton. Oh, amazing. Okay, so during COVID, we were, Chris Bowers, we were working on a show called Mrs. America, which we were recording mainly at East West in the room three, the big room there, a beautiful, one of my favorite sounding rooms. I always get the numbers wrong though. Three's the Beach Boys room. One's the massive one. One. Okay, one. Yeah, sorry. And towards the end of that season, lockdown happened. And so I got by with like various reverbs trying to fake it, including the IR in Altiverb of that room from East West. Oh yeah, right, exactly. But then after that, I found Mir, and then we started working on Bridgerton. And because of COVID, we were completely all remote recordings. So we figured out, you know, how to get players with home rigs. I mean, they're all here in town, but you know, great players that have home rigs. And um, yeah, pretty much just got like a relatively close mic sound from all the players. You know, we sent out like a list of mics that are preferable. And honestly, there weren't that many. There was only a couple hiccups there for the most part. Like everybody's cool. And then I swear it's like a magic box. Like, you know, I made a little like bus chain for my strings, but like I just put an instance of mirror on every close mic that I receive from each musician. And we do layers, you know, each musician might, you know, do a few passes of themselves. And, you know, it's super fun and amazing how, like, yeah, it's like impulse responses, I guess, as I understand, like Altiver, but it's like hundreds of impulse responses all over the room that they sample. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's way more, yeah, way more resolution. And it's, it's, it's so fun and it's so great. Yeah. Yeah. So I use that on so many gigs these days because of COVID. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I just got hip to it recently. I watched an Alan Meyerson mix with the masters talking about Mank and he was like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he was showing it in the way you can like for our listeners, if you're unfamiliar, you can like kind of really place like a violin in the first violin section, or you can place them at the back of the first violin section. You can kind of pan. It's so deep and it, I mean, I imagine that was a lifesaver for COVID string sections because strings, oh, yeah. they just have to be together. Like if you have never recorded strings, like 
solo strings is really hard to make sound like a film score, you know? Yeah, I mean, those acoustic, in- I mean, well, so many acoustic instruments, but yeah, definitely orchestral acoustic instruments, you know, we just like, our ears are trained to know that the sound that we're used to is the sound of those kind of instruments in a large room with plenty of, you know, yeah. reflections and tail and all that. Yeah, and when you hear a close mic, like, I used to record for those <laughs> those things. It's it's not nearly as pleasant, let me tell you. you know? <laughs> totally. So yeah, totally. um, yeah, you need space. I mean, you know, even a modest sized room, like just like you need some feet off of an instrument, you know, where the microphone goes. Yeah, it's just like it's just necessary. They bloom, they have frequencies coming from different parts of the instrument, and to have them all gather into a microphone, you gotta push that thing back yeah yeah i remember setting up so many string sessions at capitol and you would kind of like learn every engineer's like placement and there was a couple guys that were very uh very particular about the capsule placement like over their strings and they really they didn't want it facing downward at the instruments at all they wanted it almost some of them almost vertical so you're just like miking the air and not even like any of that instrument yeah. And so uh, it's interesting when you guys were doing the Bridgerton stuff and you were using Mirror and you had all these players like layering themselves, how did you deal with that kind of phasing that comes from the same instrument? Did some of these players have multiple violins that they pulled out or? Yeah. So I request, and I'm, we're working on season two right now and it's the same thing. Like, well, I mean, I think we have maybe all the same players this season, but um, actually, you know, I got to say Mirror kind of takes care of that to some degree. Oh, because you can move it. Yeah, because there is, I mean, that's actually one thing you have to watch out for with Mir, which is phase, because if you put stuff real wide, it can get phasey in a bad way. Um, not too bad. Last season, we requested that they use two different instruments, but we kind of learned that players don't want to play their second best instrument because, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've spent their life working on their best instrument for good reason because it sounds really great and then the action and the feel is they're used to that more and and the intonation might be even a little bit different and so i think this season we're doing less of using two instruments and it's totally working just fine because when you move a chair in mirror you know like for each player i give them each a chair i don't work so much in groups where you send all of them to like a bus or something i actually put one individual mirror on each player or each each pass for that matter and yeah when you move the chairs in the virtual room you know phase is changed every time you move that that chair so yeah it's not really an issue that is so cool yeah i have to come over and and see this with you sometime because i i have absolutely no reason to use it i'm just so fascinated about how awesome it looks but I can't go down the rabbit hole of buying it just so I can play with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a rabbit hole for sure. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay, so obviously we're talking about making films and, and making movies. When you're working with Mike Andrews, you were working just with Mike or were you also doing some records on the side or it was just Mike? Oh, I never stopped doing records. Yeah, I've always had this, you know, need my happy balance in work life is somewhere 50-50 between scores and album world. So yeah, I was always doing records all the way through just, you know, nights, weekends, and um, if we had time in between projects or whatever. Like I said, we were always doing a couple albums at Mike's as well. But that was sort of my big foray into the score world, working for him. And it was great. And it was uh, just like 
heaps volumes of learning and in so many different ways. Yeah. Well, being so self-taught or with some UCLA courses like up to that point, what were like some of the, the first things where you were like, whoa, this is totally different than the way that I make records? Like what were the big aha moments making films where you had to kind of adjust your workflow? One that first comes to mind is literally just like the nomenclature of naming files. Mm. There's kind of a pretty specific way of putting all the info you need into every stem that you print or every stem you receive from people. It all has all these, you know, different bits of information in them or should anyways. And so learning that and like just getting in the habit of like being really diligent about that whole sort of bookkeeping end of it. And also the sort of hard drive bookkeeping, mm. which I've always just tried to make that as simple as possible of just having a mirror drive for every drive I'm working on. So I can just literally have two of the same thing all the time. It just makes it easy. Yeah, I guess sort of the workflow stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess other things that pop up are not getting notes from an artist where the person behind the microphones is not, they don't have the final say. We're working for a director or showrunner or producer or all of the above. And we need to wait for notes back from those kind of people. And then sometimes there's another layer beyond them, which is like a network or, you know, the studio. Yeah. So just like learning the sort of a chain of command. And also, you know, it's kind of a, we did a lot of comedies there at Mike Andrews, a lot of uh, Judd Apatow movies and um, a really enjoyable, interesting part of the process was, you know, every two weeks we'd have a preview, meaning we'd go to a movie theater just far enough out of town so that, you know, industry people won't be like in that theater or sometimes just right <laughs> in town. Uh, it, it, it was both. And we'd go sit right next to the audience and they'd videotape the audience and then they'd interview the audience afterwards. And you get to see like what jokes are landing, what music like seems like it's landing. Oh, that's crazy. You know, it's like comedians, they have to do stand-up to see which jokes land. Your, you know, musicians go play shows and see like what flies and like the score thing, like going to previews was kind of like the version of that for that like type of work. And it was fun to sit right next to people and like go like, whoa, you laughed at that joke? I didn't even think that was funny. Like the 20 million times I've seen that joke while I was working. And it is. When you see it on the big screen, it's hilarious. Or, oh, it's so fun. That's so, I mean, it's testing basically. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, maybe I'm naive. I didn't realize they did that. That's really cool. It's crazy. They would like film the audience and then put the audio of the audience into the Avid video editor. And sometimes we'd even get a copy of the audio of the audience so we know where they're laughing. So, you know, like we can arrange the music around it sometimes. That was, that was pretty rare, but it happened a couple times. Yeah. And it was just like, whoa, we're doing this? This is weird, hilarious, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah, I just didn't know that. I, I love it when my mind gets blown. <laughs> what, what have you found... Like, everybody's got deadlines, particularly now. Everybody seems to have uh, deadlines, like, of yesterday, whether they told mm -hmm. you about them or not. Film deadlines, did you find that they were more intense than, like, records because they would get stuck in the pipeline of communication and, like, notes, and then all of a sudden, all right, we need final music in, like, three days, and you've been waiting two weeks? Did you run into a lot of that kind of stuff? You know, see, films and TV are so different that way. Films are like a much longer term project in general. Mm. It also depends on when the composer comes 
onto the gig. So, you know, in film, it's very common for composers to be hired and then fired if things aren't working out. And sometimes that happens right at the end of the process. And then it's a super like crazy rush to the deadline. Mm. But I'd say in general on films, they're kind of long term and there's especially if there's going to be like an orchestral recording, like there's planning that has to be done. Like you have to book a certain amount of time ahead of time with studios and whatnot. I don't know. I'd say overall films don't get crazy rushed. I mean, there's always exceptions, but TV shows. Yes. Um, Cause <laughs> especially if it's like an episodic, like major network where it's like, you're working on a week deadline for an episode every week. It's kind of how it works. But in the Netflix world, or streaming world, I should say, um, there's more leeway because so many series, they drop all at once so people can binge them. And so we have to make the whole series before... And, you know, we're not like doing an episode and then they air it and then doing an episode. Like if we push back a couple weeks, like they can adjust, whatever. Um, Yeah. Anyways, long story short, Major network TV is definitely like, oh my gosh, what a rush. And then I'd say streaming is a little a little easier than that. But it all depends on who you're working for, too. Different directors and stuff have different workflows. And yeah. What was the question? Oh. <laughs> well, you, you answered it. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think. I think you answered it. This came to my mind while you were saying that. And you might, you know, this might be not even on your radar, but you think it's more cost effective to film a whole TV show season at once? Like, I feel like you could be knocking out more music, knocking out different set. Like, I don't know. I mean, well, I can say from an orchestral perspective, movies, you go and you do one week or or two days or three days, however many days you need of sessions for your orchestra and you wait till the very end and you do it all at once. For TV... I guess using that same model would save money rather than paying for a studio every week. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like The Simpsons that like, I think last time I heard is still recording live musicians weekly for some of their stuff. That's expensive. Um, But if you, you know, economy style, like do a bunch of cues at once for a bunch of episodes, then you get more for your money, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to say. I never thought about it until you mentioned that. And I was like, I feel like it would be cheaper. I feel like there'd be a lot of things that would be quicker because you were like doing everything together, I guess. I don't know. Not even for a music podcast, that question, but now it's out there. (laughs) I just wanted to hit a couple random questions before we go. So one kind of odd question that I'm just curious because you do so much like split work. Mm -hmm. When you're working on a film or a TV show, do you ever have FOMO for like what? album project or like single you could be working on? (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely. That's that whole thing of like, I just love to try to strike that balance, which is, you know, not completely in my control, you know, like schedules get pushed back, both album schedules and film and TV. And then of course they're all happening at the same time. And then some new gigs pop up and I'm like, oh, well, had all my schedules gone right. I could have said yes to that gig that I would love to, you know, be a part of, but I can't. And so, yeah, I mean, there's always some of that. And I, uh, yeah, as time goes on, it's just like, I guess I just deal with it better, <laughs> but there's only so much you can control. And, you know, hopefully if there's an album that doesn't work out this time, you can work with that great artist another time, hopefully, you know? Yeah. Also, you've mentioned it in the show, you've mostly moved to mixing. Is that 
kind of part of that balance where it's a little bit easier to balance like a mix with a show or multiple mixes than it is to like, I mean, we all know like recording an album with a band in the room start to finish can take, you know, significantly longer than you think or significantly less time, but it's a little bit more out of control than like a mix. Yeah. Honestly, I think, I think me becoming primarily a mixer over the years might have had a decent amount to do with the fact that I was always based out of my own studio. And so I don't know, or maybe I just didn't make a <laughs> enough of a concerted effort to say like, hey, I want to be like specifically a recording engineer or or mainly a producer where I'm like, you know, more at the ground level from the beginning of albums or whatever. It's actually sort of one of my, I guess my New Year's resolution is to make sure that's another part of the balance that I'm finding like, feels really good to produce music, to be there from the ground up. I'm probably mostly going to be a mixer for many years, but like I definitely need to produce a record every year because it's just, you know, it's like speaking a language, like you want to keep it up. It's part of, it's in your brain. You want to speak it and it's so fun and, and it's a different type of itch to scratch than you get from mixing or yeah, there's there's FOMO. I think um, my new thing is I'm trying to be all about JOMO, though. Joy of missing out. Try to like really <laughs> get into that and Jomo. just be like very zen about that. So yeah, that's my new thing. <laughs> that's cool. That that's that's really good. Ever since I've known you, we met through a mutual friend, Joe Napolitano, years ago. You've always kind of had, at least from an, like an outsider perspective, always kind of had like a like a logo and a brand. Like to me, it was. Sun King Studios, it wasn't Steve K. Is that, did you deliberately kind of like brand yourself as the label or is that just how I took it? It's so interesting to hear that. No, this was like a very, this was a decision that I made when I was like 18 years old or something. <laughs> like, I mean, it's as simple as I took one of my favorite Beatles songs that encapsulates my initials and there you go. Done. And so SK, Sun King, People can add whatever meaning they like to that. Um, and no, it's really not <laughs> premeditated. Pre <laughs> um, yeah, it was just, I'm, as previously mentioned, definitely a Beatles fan from childhood. And that's yet another branch of that. So, yeah. yeah. Do you think it played into like your success at all that it was a thing? Or, or do you think it not matters? Like, should a kid think, like a new kid think, like, oh, I want to create like a, a brand around this or that, or, or really it's just, it's just what you chose to do at 18. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was just what I chose to do when I was really young, but I think like for someone coming up now, I think I'm much more of a fan of spending time and energy on making your brand, making music that is authentic to you and let that go around the world. However, it makes it there via video, film, album, whatever. Yeah. I, I would focus way more on the music is all I guess I could say than branding. I, or yeah, that was my weird path. It wasn't very intellectual, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, since we're talking like, you know, uh, random branding nonsense, like you and I were chatting before we got on, we started talking about just like there's something about paying more for something. It's like when you do these string sessions and you hire a bunch of players and you're at Abbey Road versus, you know, hiring four people straight out of college and throwing them in like a garage space. There's something about like paying more for something that makes it like more serious. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about like people that like push back about like 
paying more for a mix or like, oh, I got a great player. I know it's expensive, so I'm not going to pay. Like, what do you think? You think people avoid paying all that money or they, do they like it? I think it depends. It depends on the person. And it also depends on, you know, like where they're at with their project budget wise and, you know, what they can do. So I think we were kind of talking and I said earlier before we started and I was saying like, I think that there is a psychological effect to paying more and hiring like a known brand, whether it is, like you said, going to Abbey Road and having strings there, or even a great session player that is kind of a brand at this point because they're on everyone's record and they're well-known. There is insurance there. It's probably partly why I bought ATC monitors, you know, like, because there's <laughs> an exp- <laughs> a fun, expensive label on them. You could mix on other monitors all day. I did for years. But at the same time, I think everyone in every job, not just, you know, mixing or engineering or producing, like everyone's got to know that price at the end of the day does not equal artistry or necessarily your best option or worst option. Like it's just trying to really see if you can connect with the person you're trying to hire or or if you're trying to get hired as a musician or an engineer, producer, or whatever, like seeing if you can connect with the people that might be your um, potential clients, whether that's just like, well, you know, it's harder with COVID, but going to a show and like meeting people there or at a party or at a coffee shop or wherever it might be, like it's really just, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, you wanna work with people that you have human connection with. And so, However you can best and quickest, you know, path to human connection is, I guess, whatever that is for you is the ticket. <laughs> I feel like I'm on a super high horse right now. Um, no, no, I, I think, it, well, what I was going to say, and actually this is really weird. What I was going to say is, I don't know what my point of asking these like kind of random businessy brand, like rate price questions was, but I kind of love that your answer to both of those questions was I don't know, screw it. Like authenticity and human connection is what you want. And uh, funny enough, I wrote human connection down like 30 seconds before you said human connection. Uh, yeah. It's really creepy. That's why we're friends. That's why <laughs> we're friends. <laughs> I love that those businessy questions resulted in like those answers. Cause that, that ultimately that is like making music, making music is being your authentic self and like enjoying working with the people you're working with. And uh, I think that's like the real takeaway. Absolutely. Despite how much or little or how many logos or how fancy your website is, like, do you like working with them? Maybe you don't like their brand. Maybe you think they're expensive, but like you love to jam with them. Well, let's do it. Yeah, definitely. All right, so before we go, two last questions for you, which obviously you, uh, I think you know, but uh, the first one is, uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah. I mean, I guess when I was younger, I had some dreamy, you know, childhood idea that I would be like some rock star or something. And then I, (laughs) and then as I moved away from performing and more towards engineering, I realized, oh, you know, wow, if I could make a living off of music and engineering, I'd feel great about that. And, and it happened in stages a few times, you know, like, Luckily, I stopped delivering pizzas and I started teaching guitar and bass and engineering. But it, it, at least I was doing all music-related stuff. And then, you know, eventually I moved away from the teaching and did the string thing and engineering. And then just 
all engineering. And um, at each of those steps, I was like looking forward to the next step going like that would probably be my next definition of success, like surviving off of doing that. Well, it kind of sounds like you've always had a little bit of a, like a goal target oriented approach to what you're doing and how you wanted to move forward. Yeah, I guess I always had like sort of, uh, you know, an eye towards my next goal, you know, and I knew since I was a kid, I wanted to work in music, whether it was, you know, being a player or something. But um, I guess I always had my eye on the sort of next logical step or whatever. Yeah, I dig it. We all know on this podcast that I like steps. Now, now uh, the, last, the last question is, what is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what is the next smallest step? There's those steps again that you're going to take to go towards it. I guess it's just kind of like my evergreen one that's just always there. Of like, It's always something to work at, the whole uh, happy balance of things, whether it's work versus life or album versus score world. Those balances, you know, I've learned more and more over the years, like when they get out of whack, I'm not as happy, you know? And so I'm just always trying to work smarter this year. I don't know if I heard about it from you or somewhere on the internet, but, you know, got SoundFlow hooked up and, you know, just trying to work smarter and hiring an assistant a lot and um, just trying to really work smarter and, and also trying my best to ignore the FOMO and really make sure that I'm trying to like choose gigs that are a really good fit artistically and, and, you know, like interpersonally, like, you know, like we said, like trying to take gigs where you have good human connection and good artistic connection. So there's just a good flow. I mean, it's current, but it's, it's always going on these, you know, I'm always trying to do that every year, but yeah, it, you know, life changes and you got to like adapt those those uh, balances a little bit, um, but yeah, they're they're always there. Yeah, always working at them. You know, now that you have an assistant working with you fairly regularly, and you've got, I got to pick your brain on SoundFlow before we sign off. What do you find that is exciting about having the free time? Like, is it becoming like a personal creative time for you? Is it like I want to find a, a mix for a band that I want to do? Like, what are you doing with this new time that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part like just delivering things quicker number 1 yeah. and also having more energy and brain space to you know produce a record like working on one right now and in addition to all the usual stuff of like you know mixing records and mixing films and stuff i guess it's just given me space to do a little bit more of what i like workwise like take on some more producing and then also a little bit more ease uh, in delivering everything that I usually do every year. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of where it's at. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, dude, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. This is my last interview for the year. I get to uh, take a break for, for Christmas. I hope you have a good holiday season and stuff. Pop the champagne. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but this has been an awesome hang. Do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Obviously there'll be links in the show notes like there always is, but, uh, tell people whatever you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, sunkingstudios.com or Instagram slash sunkingstudios. Those are my two spots. And um, uh, I mean, I guess you could look at IMDb, but who looks at IMDb? Um. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I know uh, you're, you're busy trying to finish up stuff at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, it was a great hang, man. 
Thanks so much for having me. I am the biggest uh, fan of the show, and I have learned <laughs> so much from, especially the first five minutes of every episode. Oh my gosh, I, oh, love I, appreciate it. I look that. forward to it every week. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. I'll, I'll try to make a good one for your episode. <laughs> now there's a lot of pressure. Now I feel I feel oh, nervous. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, it was, it was good chatting. Thanks so much. That's it for episode 63. Thanks to Stephen Kay for coming to hang out with us. And as usual, thanks to all of you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, etc. I greatly appreciate all the support I get from y'all. And finally, don't forget to join in the conversation over at completeproducer.net. So I will see you next time.